Hello, hello, gather round, settle in. It's the Not The Top 20 podcast, it's the Monday pod. It's myself, Ali Maxwell, and him, George Ellick, chatting all things EFL. Hi, George. Hi, Ali. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, yeah. sad that more games were called off in the EFL, but happy that it's no longer like minus three outside. That's my uh, <laughs> my main emotion. Okay, well, uh, what a weekend it was for the games that did go ahead. And I mean, particularly in the big one, you know, 3-3 in a game of, of that magnitude, just a pendulum, a roller coaster of a match. And with, with star players stepping up in big moments as well, just an absolute treat of a spectacle for, for all that saw it, I think. I assume you're talking about Coventry Swansea. It's Coventry 3, Swansea 3. I mean, what a game, in fairness, in the World Cup final, it's fair to say. Um, and I'm quite happy that now we can get back to focusing on the real stuff. It's actually interesting. I was doing a, I do a Monday morning podcast um, for BBC Radio Oxford at the moment about Oxford United. And we were talking about how the World Cup is definitely, even though League One and League Two carried on, it, I think every single League One and League Two club has felt a bit flat over the last couple of weeks, partly because of a postponement, partly because realistically, as much as we love our clubs, it's very hard to market um, League One and League Two except to match-going fans during this period where there is a festival of football. So um, there's probably been a bit of a malaise around um, some parts of the EFL over, the, over kind of late November, early December. Hopefully we haven't reflected that, even though we both took some time off during that time, so maybe we did. Um, but yeah, now we can, uh, with a, a packed Christmas schedule, get back to, to, to the football that really matters to, to you and I and everyone else. Yeah, spot on. It's going to be a fun and very, very hectic few weeks uh, of EFL action. The Christmas period is always brilliant, I think, uh, and I'm looking forward to to wading through it with you over the next few weeks. Um, From January onwards, you will start to see and hear much more from us, uh, which we hope you'll you'll think is a good thing. Um, We're going to do our best to expand a little our offering, um, to make more of our core offering, which is, of course, the Monday pod and the betting show, and also to offer some, some new things as well. That means that we are going hard on a few other platforms, such as TikTok, uh, Instagram, YouTube as well. If you search NTT20pod on any of those platforms at the moment, you will start to see the fruits of our labour just coming into bloom. So um, please, if you'd like to support us in, a, in hopefully a small way for you, but something that can actually have quite a big impact for us, do drop us a follow uh, on those platforms, NTT20pod on, on anything uh, really. You can really help us grow there. In my role as the guy that crowbars an EFL reference into absolutely any situation i think it's only fair to flag up two goalkeepers george one of them surely the only former yellow to now have a world cup winners meadow medal the artist formerly known as damien martinez now known as emmy martinez one game for oxford united in league two on loan conceded three goals did That's he did, is that why he changed his name just immediately Maybe. changed it I've, I've tweeted this story before. I think I may have even said it on the podcast, but it is, it's a weird one where we, um, it was towards the end of the season. Martinez played the last game of the season and Ryan Clark, our keeper at the time, got injured. Um, Wayne Brown, who was kind of goalkeeping coach, uh, then played the next two games. I think he then got injured. Uh, Oxford went out and got a very young Connor Ripley on loan who played one game and was absolutely terrible. He's definitely improved a lot since that game. So we sent him packing immediately after that game. And Chris Wilder called in a favour with Arsene Wenger for Manuel Almunia, uh, which everyone got very excited about. Manuel was like, actually, you know what? 
I don't really fancy going to Burston and playing against Port Vale away for, in League Two. We were all shocked. Uh, so they apologised by sending their other young keeper, Damien Martinez, and we lost 3-0. He made a couple of good saves. We all said farewell, and that was the end of it. But he is a... Um, I was going to say he's a pointless answer. He's probably the opposite in terms of played for both Oxford and Reading. Ah, uh, nice. Nice. Mm. Huge rivals, of course, Oxford and Reading. No. Uh, <laughs> I like the idea of, of Wilder calling in a favour from Wenger. Like, when you, when you say that normally, it'll be... It'll be Mike Duff calling in a favour from Sean Dyche because he's got a, a storied history with him where they're clearly very, very close. Wilder and Wenger, for me, not not obvious bedfellows. Not even sure when their paths would have crossed. Well, it's, it's funny you say that because Arsene Wenger actually said that it was Chris Wilder's uh, Halifax side that actually were the inspiration for the change of uh, tactics he adopted uh, when things started to go wrong at Arsenal. So, um, yeah, one was an influence on the other and, and vice versa. I have no idea what the relationship was between the two of them. Um, there's like a, an Oxford Mail article where, where Wilder talks about um, the Armunia move breaking down. You know, it's it's quite weird. We could probably do a whole podcast, me and you. We could get Wenger on, Armunia on, Martinez on, find out what the hell happened in that whole scenario. But um, I don't think many people would listen. The problem with that Halifax team was that they always tried to walk it in. Let's get into some weekend action where only two games in League Two, eight games in League One, Full slate, minus one in the championship. Um, I like to base the good cop, bad cop order on the weather. George, seems like as good a way of doing it as any. Today, it's fairly miserable. So, championship, bad cop, go ahead. Bad, bad cop is Norwich uh, here, where... I'm in two minds about this whole Norwich situation, where the... The relationship between manager and fans has been poor throughout the season. Dean Smith has very much struggled to win over Norwich fans off the back end of last season in the Premier League. They went into this season with question marks. They started very poorly. And even though that slump, um, you know, he, he managed to turn it around for, for, a, for a time, um, I, you never really felt like Norwich fans were particularly on board with, with Dean Smith in his style of play, or should I say the lack of style of play. Um, and the recent form and the recent performances have clearly not been up to much. And a home defeat uh, live on Sky against uh, you know, a Blackburn team who are, are pretty high up in the table, but I don't think held much to fear for um for for Norwich has been disappointing. That is three games in a row at home where they've only picked up a point. That was in the nil-nil draw against QPR, losing to Borough and to Blackburn. These are two sides who realistically are going to be challenging Norwich for um, for promotion this season as well. So it has been a, a really poor start to the season and you only had to watch the highlights back from the game against Blackburn or, or watch the game live on Sky to see that the, the stadium is pretty much empty when Tyrese Dolan's um, shot was deflected off, off Sam McCallum and went into the back of the net and they were 2-0 down. Th- there are some caveats to this performance and result, I would say. you know Blackburn took the lead and made the game safe through two deflected efforts, the first of which you know goes down as an, as an own goal. The second of which, even though it's Tyrese Dolan's goal, I don't think it would have gone in uh, unless it was for the deflection. So massive fortune on the side of Blackburn and it's not the first time you've said that. But Norwich didn't do anywhere near enough at one nil down, really. To uh, you know, when you're one nil down at home after four minutes, up against a side who come into this one off the back of a four-one home defeat, you'd expect them to 
to, to make their home advantage, to make their perceived quality show. Um, there were not countless chances or countless opportunities created and missed in the game. Norwich had more of the ball. They had more territory. They looked fairly threatening without really going particularly close. Uh, and that isn't really good enough. And I think the key issue that Norwich fans have at the moment is that lack of style. There is no clear evidence as to what Smith wants to do. Um, you know, we've seen in the past, it's kind of surprising because we've seen at Brentford and, and Villa certainly a very clear identity and way that they like to play. Um, often pretty energetic off the ball, not letting the opposition play and, and fairly possession heavy. But I wouldn't say this Norwich team is particularly possession heavy. You know, they often have more of the ball, but it's not possession for the sake of possession it's not necessarily patient possession play it's mainly because teams generally sit off them so therefore they are lumbered with the ball more often than not there's no clear identity of how they like to do it and they're not particularly good at keeping the opposition um, at bay either so apart from a a really good Josh Sargent's scoring streak they've been under par for the whole season and I feel like with most other clubs in the championship Dean Smith would probably have been shown the door by now we know that Norwich are not run like other clubs but uh, it, it's you know, for a team who are currently fifth in their league, where top six gets you playoffs. It, it's hard to imagine a more despondent fan base as it, as it is at the moment, and, mm. and they certainly want to change. Not a good day for Norwich, the bad cop. On the plus side, you know, a fantastic result for Blackburn Rovers to pick up, particularly after getting thumped by Burnley, getting thumped by Preston North End. The fans continue to completely scratch their heads about this baffling, baffling football team that have them sitting in the top six. Uh, uh, they have no idea if they're any good or not, and, and I don't either. But um, in flashes, they can be excellent. Um, Ty Dolan, probably the player to, to flag up here with an excellent display, just gave them exactly what they needed, I think, and, and got four shots off. He was definitely their biggest threat in open play. I, I would love to see Dolan get a run of starts because he's still incredibly young, 20 or 21, still eligible for EFL 21 under 21. And, um, and uh, you know, a player who in flashes just always looks really, really good. And then quite often from the start, I think, flatters to deceive. So he started here. He was excellent. Let's see if uh, JDT gives him another few run, uh, another few I games. Love you, um, I love you calling him 2021 there when he is 21 in about nine days. So you couldn't really have got that more right. 20 <laughs> turning 21. <laughs> Lovely. A championship good cop is West Bromwich Albion or West Bromwich Corberan. Because <laughs> last week they played on, on Monday night, didn't they? So we didn't get to speak about them. They went and beat Sunderland at the Stadium of Light from behind. Uh, and now a comfy 3-0 home win against Rotherham. That makes it five league wins in a row for Cool Brown and West Brom, which doubles their points tally for the whole season. So the points tally that they achieved in 17 games, I think it was 14 points, uh, 15 points in their last five and, and flying up the table as you would expect. And there's been a lot to love uh, for the fans, sure, but even from a neutral perspective. I mean, Tom Rogic doing some X-rated things with his left foot in the last two games. Um, and outside of the left foot strike against Sunderland, I call it a strike, it was more of a stroke, I'd say. I'm going to change one letter there and change strike from stroke. Just audacious and sumptuous and, and, and world-class to equalise against Sunderland. And then a piece of play on Saturday against Rotherham, again pulled out of... The, the world-class draw, uh, controlling contested midfield area, uh, a flick over Barlas's head, and then just basically just leaning on on a through ball, on the bounce, again with the outside of his left foot, into the path of Jedley Wallace. Um, two bits of play from Tom Rogic in the last week that were simply jaw-droppingly good, uh, and that's what we're here to celebrate. Uh, of course, our favourite, Jed Fernley Wallace, 
Uh, he's been doing bits as well. The, the cross of the season in the championship so far to set up DK's winner at Sunderland and then scampering in behind as he does to finish left-footed for the opener against uh, Fulham. Then he crosses for Diangana for the second goal as well. So Wallace is starting to get the numbers that I think his work rate and his and his uh, crossing in particular this season have deserved. Uh, and things are just looking so good, aren't they? Um, Jokoslu sitting at the base of midfield, Rogic and Swift, sort of very attacking eights either side of him. Wallace and Phillips providing the width in this case with DK up front, but... Corbran has, has, has been pretty happy switching around attacking personnel. You've got Diangana coming off the bench and making an impact. You've got Thomas Asante coming off the bench and making an impact. And it's all looking very, very good. And, and even so, it's the out-of-possession stuff that I think stands out most with Corbran's West Brom. That's where I think has been the most obvious difference and the reason that they are now looking pretty scary for the rest of the league. Since Corbran took over six games, only one team's generated more than one XG in a game against them. That was Sunderland last Monday, and that was due to a penalty that they were awarded and it was scored. There's just there's a well-drilledness about their play that completely stands out. And then in the ball, on the ball rather, in possession and on the attack, a sort of composure and just a, a confidence as well that was so lacking in the start of the season. And there's big parallels here with with Middlesbrough, who who were you know, performing similarly to West Brom in terms of their shot data, performing similarly badly to West Brom in terms of their points tally, and are now feeling more composed, uh, a different man in the dugout. Uh, things just tweaked a little, and all of a sudden the confidence comes flooding back. So very much good egg, good cop, Corboran and West Brom. George, talk to me about uh, Baggies and, and what you're seeing here. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I agree with you about the style of play. I think it's really interesting to see how quickly um, Corbran has made West Brom a much better attacking force by just mixing it up a little bit, by by being happy. You know, I think Rotherham looked incredibly awkward on the ball for, for large periods of the game um, on Saturday where it's not really the way they like to play, but West Brom were happy to sit off and let them have it. And we saw how many times... Um, having invited Rotherham forwards, they would pick them off, pick off their high line, especially for the first goal, and, and that was something we saw Huddersfield and, and Carlos Corbrand do many times last season as well. I think, and this is maybe a bit of a hot take, and it might be a week or two late to, to be a hot take, but I Sunderland, uh, sorry Sunderland, are currently in twelfth, but that's not what I meant to talk about. Um, Middlesbrough are currently in thirteenth on thirty points. West Brom are currently in sixteenth um, on twenty nine points. I'm going to call it now that I think they both finish in the top six. And this is kind of built on a couple of things. Firstly, it's because, as I say, every podcast until we stop doing this, I'm a slave to the data. Slaves have to abide by their masters. And my master, Mr. Data, Mr. Underlying Numbers, um, has, has had both teams down as a top six side throughout the season, even under their old managers. So... As much as I love to listen to the opinions and thoughts of Borough and West Brom fans who ignore that or we call it noisy or say it's irrelevant, I'm not going to do that. I think there is some evidence there to suggest that um, early in the campaign when things weren't going right, they were fine. I'm also happy to look at the evidence that's being served up to us now in terms of the data and the results in that both of them, both Corbran and Carrick, have massively improved both sides. I think that is clear to see. I think the reasons for that we've covered on this pod and last week with with Bill Burrow and Carrick, and I'm happy to to kind of go with that as well. Whilst also understanding that the underlying numbers I mentioned earlier have improved and have them now down as probably both in the top four. 
normally I, I would say that probably wouldn't be enough given their lowly position. But I have massive question marks over pretty much every t- every side above them at the moment, starting with Blackburn um, on 39 points in third. We are going down to West Brom on 29 points. So that is a 10-point gap to make up with Baggies having a game in hand over the next 23 games, 24 games. Yes, I'm I'm backing West Brom to make up that, that handicap over the next 23, 24 games, if that's the case. We've spoken about Norwich, who are in fifth. Massive question marks over them at the moment as well. Don't look to me to be any reason to, to be concerned about them going on a big run. Watford are the ones in fourth at the moment who you probably say are going to be hard to chase down. Defensively, so solid at the moment. Um, we've got Joao Pedro looking like probably one of the best players, if not the best player in the league right now. Will he stay after January? We don't know, but they've also got quality throughout the side too. Bilic has made a positive impact. We haven't spoken about them much because they are just fairly... Um, they're not particularly exciting it's either nil nil or they win or they win to nil as, as it's going so they would be the ones i'd be most um you know positive about from this but qpr off the back of a really poor run critchley comes in but they've been a mid-table side over the last few weeks preston fans cannot understand how they're currently in seventh birmingham unbelievable job so far um but it's a huge ask for them surely to convert what was the relegation candidacy into into a top six finish Millwall, Swansea, inconsistent as we know. Swansea on a, on a big winless run at the moment. Reading, my thoughts on them are, are pretty clear. Even though Inter's done an amazing job, I think for them to finish mid-table would be an unbelievable achievement. And I have no expectations that they're going to finish in the top six. And then Sunderland in twelfth, Coventry in fourteenth, Luton in fifteenth. Luton have lost Jones. That's got to be a negative. Coventry and Sunderland basically on level points with Bayern and West Brom. You know, I, they'd be ten-point favourites in that match bet from now to the end of the season. So it's it's a poor league. And we've already seen in such a short space of time both of those teams making their dominance count in terms of wins and going from being near the relegation zone to already in touching distance of the playoffs. So, it you know, they're both kind of 15 to 8 shots to get into the top six. So this isn't as outlandish as maybe the league table looks. But from where I'm sitting, I think that's probably even value. I, you know, I think both would have to tear off massively if they're not going to be right in amongst it come, come May. Actually, yeah, with Betfair, both of them 15 to 8. Um, Burnley, Sheffield United, Watford, Norwich and Blackburn seen as being more likely to make the top six and then West Brom and QPR. So of the teams that you listed, yeah, just Watford, Norwich and Blackburn are seen as more likely right now with uh, with Betfair's traders. Uh, another game to talk about for sure is Burnley 3, Middlesbrough 1 at George. This game for me was about the dribbly Belgium, uh, Belgian Manuel Benson basically performing the living embodiment of the phrase, it's not your mistakes that define you, it's how you respond to them. Giving the ball away for Borough's goal, completely against the run of play with a fairly mad like 60-yard back pass and then just winning it for them from that point. Yeah, he did. I mean, he's he's been one of the stars of the championship season so far and as you say it was kind of a weird, he was just trying to keep the ball in play I think and he hadn't really thought about the fact that if he kicked it towards his own back um, back line there was a chance that it might not be the defender who got onto the end of it and that was the case um, as Duncan Watmore went through and, and slotted at home to make it 1-0 kind of against the run of play um, I think to be expected you know this was never going to be a game that, that Borough were going to dominate um, the first half was was pretty 
drab and um and it was Burnley who had the better chances but uh, Borough were definitely in it but then Watmore came on at half time for Marcus Force and immediately got his goal to send them 1-0 up um and it's been so impressive to see how Burnley have, have transitioned from a side who throw away leads consistently to a side who are never beaten um they've made a habit recently of going behind in games and, and coming back and winning them and winning them comfortably as well what I loved about the first Benson goal um I compared him to Iron Robin on Five Live on Saturday, which um, in terms of you, you know exactly what he's going to do, but you can't really do much to stop it. He gets the ball on that right hand side, he comes onto his left, and he shoots. And I think there was quite an obvious um, top moment here where, and very cleverly, I might be giving him too much credit, where I think Benson probably knows that now when he's doing that, goalkeepers are going to get ready to to dive up to their to their top right hand corner, his top left hand corner. And I like to think that he knew that and he and he drove it into the bottom right knowing that Stefan was probably going to be wrong-footed. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, I think Stefan was probably anticipating a shot across him. Uh, it was shot fired in low to, to his left-hand side and, and he got nowhere near it at his near post. Uh, and quite funnily, um, the, it was the feature game on Five Live on on, um, on Saturday. So whilst we were on air, they, they had the kind of the match noise going on in the background the whole time and we could bring in um, the, you know, the team who were there throughout. And when Benson scored his second... The reporter said that it was a, a, you know, as it was an overhit cross. And then we, we overheard one of the Burnley fans in front of us saying, no, it's not. He does it every week. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, yeah, yeah, normally they don't normally they don't bounce halfway before like before kissing the inside of the post and going in. Um, uh, yeah, an, an eminently fortunate goal, um, albeit a very, very good cross in that caused havoc both with the, the Borough centre-backs and also Stefan himself. And then um, a, a corner that was put into the own net, their own net by, by Johnny Housen before Chubarakpom missed a penalty um, that, that would have brought them back into it. Uh, Connor Roberts sent off for... It's going to be really interesting to see what happens with that appeal. I, assumed, I assume it will get overturned but there's no denying that Roberts was trying to swat the ball away with his hand but fortunately for him or unfortunately maybe uh, hit the hit the bar but the referee didn't see that and thought he'd punched it away um you I assume you can't get sent off for attempted handball (laughs) handball um, intense no I don't think so (laughs) yeah um so it was a great second half an absolutely vital three points for Burnley I don't think Borough lost too much I think it went not to burn why is, why is it went, vital went, three points for the for the runaway league leaders? Surely that's the well, one one team I, I in the think, league that, if anything, probably ha- probably happy without. No, I, I think <laughs> I think beating I think beating a, a team in Borough who've who come into it in the kind of form they're in um, is important. I think when especially when you've got Sheffield United not too far behind them. Um, but I think for Borough. Yeah, so not, not to blow my own jumper, I think I, I think I called it right on the betting show. I think this was a game which was probably one step too far for Borough, but they still showed that they are much improved. And, and as I mentioned earlier, um, a side to be reckoned with. So, um, yeah, a good game. Um, I liked that, you know, I, I forgot that it was on the betting show, Company versus Carrick. Um, they played each other 17 times in um, Manchester derbies. I think I'm right in saying that Carrick won eight, Company won seven, but first blood to, to Company in the managerial rivalry. That's really nice. That's really nice. Well, obviously everything's pretty hunky-dory for Burnley right now. And nine wins in 12, um, the, the the start of the season that offered a lot of potential and promise, but also a lot of drawn matches, uh, has quite pleasingly been turned in, into wins. And they've hit the two points per game mark now in the last couple of games. They're scoring two goals a game over the course of the season. And, and it's been beautiful to watch 
Very exciting. Great to cover. It seems like we've talked about a different star man each week, which is great fun as well. And, and company in the dugout. You know, it is, it's great stuff. It's, it's really, really great uh, for the league. But in the interest of not just saying the same thing every week, and particularly in the interest of not just saying teams that are winning are amazing and teams that are losing are bad, I just want to note that they are on a pretty prodigious hot streak in terms of finishing. Um, firstly, they have the, the highest conversion rate in the division. Now, this is not a criticism of Burnley. It's it's 14%, which is not insanely high. Someone's got to have the highest conversion rate in the division. The number alone being 14% does not suggest for a minute that it has to drop off necessarily from that point. But it, it is worth flagging that when you have a team who are among the best attacking teams in the league and they've been the best finishers in the league, then you are gonna then you are gonna really, really run hot. It's the XG numbers that sort of underline that this is one of the hottest finishing streaks that we've probably covered at the top of the of the championship. In the sense that Burnley have scored forty two non penalty non-own goal goals from 29 uh, expected. So 13 goals over their XG number. And first thing that you hear a lot when you bring this sort of stuff up is, well, we have the best players in the division and that beats your fancy meaningless XG stats. But it is a fact that the best players do not always overperform their expected goals certainly not at championship level, not even really at the very, very top level outside of a handful of players in history. The best players at championship level don't always overperform their XG. Um, I probably do believe in a few other things that are part of this conversation, which I think can have an effect on finishing more broadly in the short term. And that is things like composure, like confidence, like good mentality and the support of a manager and a good system. I think those are sort of small variables that have an impact on on finishing ability but it is true that their five biggest attacking threats are all outperforming their expected goals number that's Rodriguez that's Teller that's Brownhill that's Zaruri and that's Benson and it's not that wild or even that critical in the year of our Lord 2022 talking about football to raise this uh, and to chat about this I think I think there's value in suggesting that this isn't going to continue for another 23 games. And that doesn't mean they'll drop off massively in terms of points picked up. But if it does, it's not going to be quite as easy for them. Like Benson has eight goals from 1.5 expected. He's got two, <laughs> he's got two goals straight from crosses. Like it is pretty crazy. And, and, and it probably won't matter. And there's also, as we always say, a chance that the numbers improve that the confidence and the quality that they have as they carry on this season, the dominance over other teams and, and, and the amount that they get in other teams' heads, there's a chance the numbers improve and therefore the goal output continues. Even if they ran exactly in line with their underlying numbers, they're still among the best attacks in the league, but they're actually not that much far clearer than Norwich, than Middlesbrough, than Sheffield United and there probably wouldn't be this much gap between them and the rest in terms of their, their goal scoring. And, and frankly... They do concede a goal a game, which, you know, would probably cause more issues than it currently is causing if they do drop off. So I just wanted to, to flag it up because I've been saying, we've been saying for quite a few weeks and months, Burnley the best attacking team in the championship by miles. And while I stand by it on most levels, I don't think it's as clear cut as maybe that just the pure goals scored stat suggests. So I know it's controversial. 
I know that you're a big Burnley guy and have been since pre-season and we're all very impressed with your prediction uh, and, and all of us who bet on it are very excited. But there you go. Just thought I'd flag it. Yeah, the annoying thing for me is that you'd warned me about this. So I had all morning to prepare my counter-argument, Your Honour. And um, annoyingly, my, my counter-argument was going to be, it's not going to matter. But you've already said it yourself. I, I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, I think you, certainly with Benson, you know, I pretty much every Burnley game, when the teams come out at 2 o'clock or at 7 o'clock or 6.45, I look at the team... I have a look at the goal scoring markets and I work out who I'm going to back to score because I'm so confident they are going to score. It kind of depends on, on who's the biggest price and who's and who's playing. Teller and Rodriguez are normally the ones you land on because when I see Benson's price, even though it's big, I'm like, well, he's not going to do it again. Well, he's not going to do it again. Well, he keeps doing it over and over again. But you are right. There's there's no way he's going to suddenly score 20 goals in a season off unexpected goals off, off three. Like, it's just not going to happen. Um, but the, the key two things for me in this Burnley debate are the two th- the two key things I looked at were firstly are they picking up points in bad performances where they shouldn't effectively are they in games that they've drawn um, are they being fortunate not not to lose those games and the answer is is basically no like there have been a couple um, weirdly that the three all against Blackpool where game state plays a, a massive part in that was the one where you know the expected goals suggest they definitely should have lost. Um, they have had pretty tight games in amongst those. The Preston one was was pretty level in terms of the chance they created. They were definitely unfortunate not to beat Hull um, in that one all draw where they absolutely battered them. A similar story against Stoke. If anything, you know, when you take into account the one 0 defeat against Watford, where again they were the better side, you could probably argue that they've deserved to pick up more points in the games where they um, haven't won. And then you look at the the games they have won. They've won thirteen games this season, and in seven of those they have won the game by two goals or more. So they are exerting massive dominance over their opposition in the games that they do win. Um, we've seen some big scorelines in that time as well. Um, you know, the three win, especially recently where we've seen them win twice 3-0 uh, and 3-1, of course, against Borough, but also the 4-0 win against Swansea uh, into that as well, the 5-1 win against Wigan. So even if they are to stop scoring at such a rate, they're winning games by a margin that means that it's probably not going to matter. And it's not like they're picking up points in games where they're being second best as well. When you look at the goal difference in the championship so far this season their goal difference is 22 Sheffield United's goal difference is 17 they're the top two and then the next reads Blackburn have are on one plus one Watford plus eight Norwich plus five QPR and Preston zero Birmingham four Millwall one you know not only these two teams are only two teams with a, a double digit goal difference they are miles clear of everybody else and I think that is what's going to be reflected at the end of the season so yeah I mean they probably won't continue. Will it affect their their points tally? I'm not so sure. Will it impact the title race between these two sides at the top end of the table? Maybe, yeah, mm. possibly. An XG goal difference of 6.5, a goal difference of 22. It's been some fantastic finishing. Let's finish on a positive. Uh, Huddersfield nil, Watford 2. George, it's a pretty tough scene at Huddersfield here. It's another game that you, that you called very, very correctly on the betting show uh, looks to me like they were by no means horrific but on the one hand struggled to threaten and on the other hand could not contain Joao Pedro yeah that's basically it this is what Watford are going to be this season aren't they I think when, when Joao Pedro plays like this there's a very good um, highlights reel doing the rounds on social media at the moment of all of his touches basically in the game and and it's you know, I said on the betting show this was basically a relegation Premier League candidate versus a, a League One 
probably playoff candidate cup game um but it was a, that's what this will be in my mind in six months time possibly and it looked like that and Jao Pedro looked like the Premier League player playing up against the League One team um where there wasn't a great deal between them in terms of of, of what they actually created um Huddersfield you know certainly weren't carved open at will although Ishmael Assar missed a, a very good chance as, as well and, and Jao Pedro missed one before um before taking the lead uh but I think Huddersfield felt like they should have had a penalty, um, but you know when it's when it rains it pours, and, and at the moment after a, you know, a short sharp burst of uh, Mark Fotheringham energy early on, um, things are waning pretty quickly, and, and the whole club is in a situation where you know they need investment, they need someone to come in and save them really at the moment because um, even though. Uh, Dean Hoyle's come in and, and and certainly provided some stability for the short term. Um, things off the pitch aren't looking much better than, than off it right now. Um, and as a club, you, you, I do feel like after a prolonged period in, in the top two divisions, not just one, um, and, and getting so close to the Premier League last season, they don't feel, you know, we've seen clubs who are well set to return to the Championship um, struggle to do so in, in Sunderland and Ipswich. It normally takes a couple of seasons. It doesn't seem to me at the moment like um, like Huddersfield are a side who are going to come down and immediately be um, well set to, to return. But, uh, you know, it's it's still the 19th of December. There's still time for them to turn it around, of course. But at this stage, there, there's very little to be positive about. I must admit, I'm not massively enthused or impressed by Watford as a team at the moment. Um, but I do love some of their players. So you kind of get, uh, you know, a bit of good and a bit of bad. I, I think the best way of putting it, and you kind of mentioned it when, when you mentioned highlights, I'm very happy to watch their highlights and see the really cool stuff that João Pedro does and a few of their other players. I'm not that keen about watching a full 90 of them at the moment, if that makes sense. In fact, I I tried to watch the Hull game last Sunday, was it, on the iPad when I was having a, a warm bath and I almost fell asleep and drowned because they were that poor oh uh, my God. and drew no So there you go. Exactly. It's, it's actually <laughs> a, a physical risk to watch a full 90 of Watford. Uh, but Delhi Bash- Bashiro started the last two games for them. Um a, a, a central midfield injury crisis and his return from injury has given him a chance here and first impressions from the first two games that he's played are he's absolutely rapid and when he decides to carry it through central areas at speed it is the old hot knife through butter and it's quite fun to watch so I, I'm hopeful to see Delhi Bashiru continue to start games that they had to sign old um, old man Bakuna Leandro Bakuna the older brother on a free and he went straight in to play next to Delhi Bashiru in midfield, such as their paucity of numbers uh, in that part of the pitch at the moment. Preston nil QPR one. North End beaten by Park Rangers. Uh, Neil Critchley's first game and Neil Critchley's first win. The former Blackpool man uh, going to Preston and winning would be a lovely uh, thing to make Blackpool fans smile, except they hate him, they call him the snake, and they're just quite upset in general at the moment. Anyway, uh, set-piece winner from Jimmy Dunn, uh, but don't make that think... Don't make that make you think that they weren't deserving of this. I think generally very impressive. Um, yes, Dieng made a big save towards the end. And yes, Brad Potts volleyed just wide, uh, Preston applying a bit of pressure once it was 1-0 and, and, and towards the end of the game. But at 0-0, and I'd say f- for the majority of the game, QPR were the better side here. So um, very pleasing uh, first impression of Critchley for their fans. It was a, a 4-3-3, but different to, to McBeal's really sort of narrow 
dual number 10s with insane attacking width being provided by the fullbacks. It's a, a bit more conservative, a bit more pragmatic, exactly as we discussed last week when talking about the, the change from Beal to Critchley. Um, the, the wingers in this instance, Willock and Adoma, did play a m- much wider than the, the, the wide attackers or the number 10s under Beal. Uh, and the fullbacks were a little less gung-ho um, and they played really well. Dozel and, and the lovable Erogue in midfield Seem, seemingly having a bit more license to do bits in, in central midfield, but maybe not license. I think I think maybe with things just a bit less clogged up in front of them due to those you know those narrow attackers in the first half of the season, maybe this is going to help bring out the best in in Irobanam who can carry it really nicely, uh, Dozel who can who can pass it really nicely. Uh, I think those guys are, are ones to watch under Critchley, um, and I just I don't want to go too far because it's only one game. But as you know, I really love. Critchley as a manager have done for a few years and I just think things like their shape and work rate out of possession and their set piece proficiency will both improve under Critchley and those are two key parts of the game you know it might not be as aesthetically pleasing in attack in open play but actually I think Beal was somehow pulling the wool over people's eyes a little bit because their attacking open play numbers are pretty bad only a couple of teams that have created more than them and scored more than them in open play. So um, interested to see what happens in the next few weeks as they continue to to take their first steps under Critchley. Interested to see what happens when Big Ilias comes back from the World Cup. Uh, wasn't it lovely to see him and Zaruri get a few minutes in the third place game? Um, yeah, if he's going to play a more traditional 4-3-3 with a slightly wider wide forwards, uh, it'd be interesting to know where Cher and Willock fit into that. Anyway, early days, feeling positive. Great win for QPR. Great day out for their fans who've had a pretty miserable few months. Uh, Friday night was Birmingham three, Reading two. George, these are the teams that Mad we game. these are the teams that we had twenty third and twenty fourth in our preseason t- predictions, and they're eighth and eleventh. Yeah, fair play to both. Um, I went into this pretty confident we were going to see a uh, a Birmingham home win. Um, based on, on how good they've been recently and, and Reading's struggles to, to maintain that early season form despite obviously a very good win over Coventry uh, in the first game back from the Euros. Um, but it was, a, it was a kind of... It's hard to know what to take from this game because uh, Birmingham scored three first-half goals, um, three just absolutely horrendous bits of defending from Reading, all three of them individual errors, all three of them punished in, in a game where Birmingham didn't create much apart from those three chances. And then in the second half, it was an absolute onslaught from Reading where they scored twice late and never really looked likely to get back into the game. So how much of it is just game state, Reading being 3-0 down, Birmingham taking their foot off the gas? Um, I have absolutely no idea what to take from this one at all. So <laughs> I'm hoping you've got some uh, some better analysis. Well, my, my best analysis is that John Eustace is the Lionel Scaloni of the championship right now. That is, of course, the World Cup winning manager, Lionel Scaloni. Uh, and the reason I say that is because, and we saw it here, Birmingham have an incredible record at the beginning of games. I don't, I'm not sure they've conceded a goal in the first 10, 15 minutes of games, and they've scored like eight. And for a team that, albeit added some talented players at the end of the window who have stepped in and are thriving, the likes of Chong and Hannibal and Christian Bielik, this isn't a team with massive strength in depth. And so the start of games is very, very crucial in a league where five subs are available. If you don't have that strength in depth, but you do have a strong starting eleven, 
well, it makes sense that you'd want to start pretty quickly and try and get ahead and then defend your lead rather than maybe um, slow the game down and back yourselves to win it in the second half uh, if it's a tight one. And and Eustace and Scaloni are very similar in that regard. Um, Scaloni's ta- basically won the tactical battle, certainly in all three of the last three games, the quarterfinal against the Netherlands, the semifinal against Croatia, and the final against France undeniably won the tactical battle with smart little tweaks and little changes here and there. He made one tactical tweak for each different game. He changed the shape for each different game. And albeit Eustace isn't doing that quite so much in terms of always changing shape or always making one change here or there, it strikes me that his 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 game plans, his setups, his, his, his tactical instructions are, are clearly excellent, which is why they're doing so well. Now, on the flip side... They haven't always looked that comfortable defending leads. And Lord knows that was the same for Argentina. Threw away a two-goal lead against the Netherlands. Threw away a lead against Saudi Arabia to lose. Threw away a two-goal lead against France in the final uh, and almost lost the game. And that's another parallel with Birmingham. You know, they suddenly conceded two goals here in the last 20 minutes of the game. And if they hadn't been gifted those goals early on, well it actually could have ended up with with Reading nicking a point or three. So they have to be a bit careful. I don't really know necessarily how he improves that. And I still think when I look at it overall, it's a it's a feather in the cap of John Eustace that he is so consistently setting his team up to fly out the blocks, to cause opposition teams real problems because they're so good out of possession and also generally nicking the odd goal as well to put them ahead in games. That's for me why they're in eighth place. That's why we rate John Eustace so highly. The Lionel Scaloni of the championship. Uh, as for Red- <laughs> as for Reading, I just I still find this an interesting case study and I'd like to hear from some Reading fans about how they're feeling and how they analyze their squad and the squad's performances because lord knows we struggle to do so and we've we you know we've obviously misplaced them in in the last what four seasons pretty consistently but reading have been in the championship for about well for 17 or 18 of the last 20 21 years they've had three uh, seasons in the prem and 17 or 18 in the championship and for a lot of that they've been finishing in the top 6 top 10 of the championship until the majority of the last 5 years or so this must be the worst squad that they've had, the worst squad of players that they've had in, for a lot of fans in living memory in 20, 25 years. And that's because they've been in either an embargo or a, or an EFL business plan for the last however many windows. They've been put in a handicapped situation in terms of squad building through the fault of their owners who haven't abided by the rules. That's left them with a squad with one proven top, top striker for the level, that's Lucas Zhao. I'm happy to say he is a proven top striker for the level, but he's only played about 50% of minutes for Reading in about three years. You can't rely on him to stay fit. They have one very good attacking midfield player who's proving that he's a very good attacking midfield player this season, Tom Ince, and he's there basically because he's the son of the manager. I don't think it's that controversial to say Tom Ince probably wouldn't be playing for Reading if his dad wasn't the manager, and they're all the better for it. They've got a couple of players, first teamers who came through the academy and who are doing their all for their boyhood club, Tom Holmes and Tom McIntyre. They've got a couple of sort of solid performers, guys that in my eyes would, you know, raise the floor of a team but rather than make the ceiling much higher. Guys like Yeardom, I'm thinking of here, Junior Hoylet, spring to mind. And then just loads of free transfers and loans, um, not necessarily the sorts of players that make up really strong squads at the level. You add in that a manager that hasn't managed for eight years, 
And the fact they're 11th, as you said, is, is very impressive. I think Paul, Paul Lintz is doing about as good a job as any manager could do with this squad. But there are also quite a lot of games like this, almost all away from home. They, they've they been really poor. And at home, they've been almost perfect, really. Really strong, really sturdy, scored goals when they need to, defended for their lives, picked up a ton of points. So I just think at this moment, I, I can't, I can't imagine really where the Reading fans would be really positive, which I think they should be based on the league position, or whether they look at some of the performances that they've put in and and have generally appraised the squad and think that seems unlikely. Uh, I think it's quite an interesting question. Um, I basically think there are three things that can happen from here. Their home form dips, their away form stays the same and they kind of spiral. Their away form improves and they maintain this top half form and, and who knows on top of that. Or things more or less stay the same. They can maintain their good home form. The away form continues to be bad. And they'll probably end up in the bottom half well away from relegation. So, interesting. I wonder what Reading fans think is the most likely outcome of those three. Bristol City 1, Stoke 2. George, I'm hoping you might have some Stoke positives here because I'm a bit wound up by the other team. (laughs) Well, yeah, I was going to focus mainly on Bristol City's... um defending because it was um, really really poor for both goals having taken the lead uh, a really good bit of play from Cameron Pring um, who is who's been a kind of rare um, shining light I guess over the last couple of weeks um, in what's been a a pretty tricky time for for Bristol City Uh, a really good ball in that kind of a ferocious ball in that kind of smacked Naki Wells in the chest before going in um, to get them 1-0 up but uh, some of the defensive lapses and uh, just an inability to really clear their lines, just just catching them twice. Um, I think it was King being caught in the, in the first goal. Um, the second, as I say, just 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 got to get rid of the danger. Something they completely failed to do. Um, definitely, I guess some positives to Stoke. You know, they they took their chance. I think is all you can say. It wasn't like Stoke created uh, plenty of them at all. It wasn't like they were uh, particularly dangerous in, in open play either. Um, I don't think this was necessarily the, the kind of performance that we expect to see when uh, Alex Neal gets his team playing the way he wants to at Stoke but certainly it's the kind of result that they want to see and, and at this stage probably that's probably the most important thing in order to get everybody on side um, but Bristol City big concerns about them at the moment um, because they are quite quickly drifting down towards a relegation battle I mean Andy King defended can you quickly drift it's a slide I think you can quickly drift if the current's like really bad you're still drifting aren't you I think a quick drift is a slide there. I think that's You don't slide on the sea. Like if you're in a if you're in a bad current, you're not like sliding away, are you? It isn't doesn't slide suggest incline. I didn't realise we had to be sea based for this. I thought we could you True. know I, I thought we could flip where, where we were basing our analogies, land or sea. I, I would say that slide is implies incline and sl- and drift is horizontal. So actually so they, they are sliding then not drifting because they're going mm. down the table well slipping inside the eye of their mind and the fans looking back on this one in anger and rightly so i i just think i think there's a lot not to like at the moment they're winding me up a bit bristol city um firstly the defending i mean andy king defended sutar's ball forward like he was a six foot central midfielder who hasn't spent much of a, his 15 year career dealing with long straight balls which are the meat and drink for a 15-year championship centre-back because he's not that 
because he is a six foot central midfielder who hasn't spent much of his career dealing with long straight balls. And Pearson's playing this really weird game, this weird man management game, which he plays quite a lot, which very few EFL managers in the current sphere of the EFL play, which is publicly call out and very publicly drop or question the performances, sometimes the mentality and the work rate and the dedication of individual players and play other players in their position, even if they are not a natural in that position, because he trusts them. And when he talks about Kingy, he just talks about trusting him. And he's been working with Kingy for quite a long time and was obviously a part of a, a very successful Leicester side together. But for me... It's not ideal to have a manager who is still clinging to certain players and this concept of trusting them to do a job in whatever position more than the guys that you've spent one and a half million pounds on who actually do that job in good teams. They don't defend well. They don't defend their box well. They are soft defensively. And that's been the case for like four seasons now for Bristol City. I went back through the last four seasons and even if you even if you go underlying rather than just goals conceded, the Championship League average for XG conceded per game is between 1.04 and 1.11 over the last four seasons. It, it fluctuates between those two um, numbers, which is all pretty tight. And for four seasons, Bristol City have been way off it. They've been way below average defensively. In fact, they've been among the five worst teams for XG against in the league for four seasons now and you can't get anywhere if you can't defend properly so the next question is who's to blame and of course Pearson's been in charge for just under two years he's actually the third longest serving championship manager he hasn't even hit two years yet which isn't a great reflection on the league uh, and its churn of managers so it's not just down to him there was two years before he arrived where where this had already set in but a lot of people point to poor personnel in that part of the pitch the players basically and it's not hard to get away from the fact that that's the issue that Pearson likes to present as well. He definitely likes to present the fact that this is nothing to do with him. These are the individual players who either don't want it enough or don't train hard enough or aren't trustworthy enough. But there are tons of teams, tons of examples of teams that compete at the top end of this division with good defensive records, with defenders who, as individuals on paper, are not massively highly rated. Birmingham, for example, they've conceded less than a goal a game this season. It's a huge part of the reason they're eighth. They don't have individual defenders that people go crazy for. Preston North End have conceded less than a goal a game this season. They don't have individual defenders that people go crazy for. I really believe that there are managers out there who could tighten up this team defensively, even with the same personnel that they have that have been part of a bad defence for a few years. I definitely believe that there are managers that would be more level-headed when it comes to supporting individual players rather than digging them out. And, you know, it's a, it's a matter of taste as to which you think is the, is the best way of, of, uh, of, of motivating and managing the modern player. I just, I just find Pearson's responses to these poor spells and these poor performances, like looking at journalists as if they, he can't believe they dare have the temerity to ask him why there's a one and a half million pound centre-back sitting on the bench and a six-foot central midfielder struggling to defend strikers at this level. The way that he responds, I think, reflects quite poorly on the club. It's this feeling of like lashing out, of defending, basically defending yourself by going after others 
who are also the same people that you are meant to be motivating and getting the best out of. Um, it's not just Pearson. There is an air of apathy around the whole club. That's the vibe that I get. But Pearson himself feels apathetic and it's quite infectious when that comes from the manager. So while I recognise it's been a messy few years off the pitch and what seemed like quite a well-run club now with hindsight just looks like a club that was running unsustainably. Now they're cutting their cloth. They don't seem particularly well run. Um, it's it's a pretty tough time for them at the moment. And uh, yeah, I'm interested to see what happens over the next few weeks and months. Uh, we had a, a few good draws, didn't we, George? That Cov Swansea game was beautiful, chaotic, perfect. Mm. Yeah, the three all uh, we mentioned earlier, Coventry racing into a three goal lead and looking really good value for it before Swansea turned a lot of possession into some goals. Um, yeah, it was didn't really see this coming at all. Coventry looked like they were uh, running out to a a very deserved win. Uh, Callum O'Hare playing very well in the 10 roll. Gokresh getting his inevitable goal to take him to the top of the goal scoring charts in the championship. Um, but it was just kind of chaos towards the end of the second half where um, every time Swansea came forward, they looked like they were going to score. And eventually they they did enough to get the, the third goal. And, and it felt like from there, if any either team were going to win it, it would be Swansea. But um, points shared, certainly Russell Martin are happier with the two managers uh, to get one. We also had Cardiff 1, Blackpool 1, uh, which saw a magic assist from Callum Robinson for Keon Tete to smash Cardiff in front. But despite, you know, definitely having the better of the game, they couldn't get too clear. And uh, and it was a Gary Great Medin. assist from Paveda as well. Yeah, I was, was going to get to that. Great great header from Gary Medine. Who else? Away at Cardiff. Uh, nice assist from Ian Paveda. And that one ended level. Uh, Hull 1, Sunderland 1 was pretty lively as well. Oscar Estupinian missing a pen. Sunderland going down to 10 men pretty harshly in my eyes. And then going ahead, uh, Stewart with a brilliant breakaway, uh, you know, direct play. And, and Stewart with such a calm finish, uh, only for two fans to equalise from a nice Ryan Woods uh, delivery, little ball over the top. So one all there as well. Uh, in League One, George, we had eight games, some interesting results. Uh, we'll start with bad cop because the weather's still bad. What are you saying? Bad cop here has to be Portsmouth. Um, I think it would be remiss not to have them um, taking the mantle, having been beaten by a relegation uh, threatened side, uh, a managerless side as well, an MK Dons, and being beaten 2 0 as well. Uh, that means that their home, well, they're just their league form is, is absolutely terrible. Just one win in their last 11. Uh, that came at Forest Green, who at the time were, were the poorest team in the league and, and might still be. Um, there was. Mitigating circumstances, I guess, in this, uh, Pompey were the team who looked more likely to score, I would say, up until um, the opening goal from, from MK. There was then a ridiculous decision that went against Pompey, where there was a goal disallowed, um, despite the fact that it came off a an MK Don's player, so shouldn't have been offside anyway, and that was at 1-0. So I'm sure, you know, certainly Danny Cowley and, and his players and staff would point to, to some aspects here going against them but even so this is an MK Don side who despite me um, putting them up in the betting show uh, are a relegation threatened side whose results have meant that their manager's been sacked and um, you know there hasn't been a great deal to, to be excited about for MK in the last few weeks and, and they were able to go to, to Pompey and win the only team they've done that to in recent weeks and months was Charlton and that has instigated a period of absolute turmoil at, at Charlton as well Um I think Pompey fans are starting to lose patience with the manager and I think that's probably understandable given how poor their their run of form has been um, and you can't really make any excuses for such a, not only such a poor home display but also such a bad run of form as well. Um, if, if 
you know, if Danny's going to make it work at Pompey, you feel like he's got to turn it around pretty quickly. What a cross from Conor Grant onto the head of Bradley Johnson for the first goal. I wish, and maybe there is, I really hope there's a reverse angle of this because I don't think the camera one angle really shows what I think was some pretty sexy whip and dip on that. Um, the trajectory was beautiful. It looked like Griffiths could have maybe come and punched it, but I just think when it's when it's that wickedly delivered, you stay at home and, and Johnson ended up heading it in. And then just a bit of confidence. Funny what a goal can do. Uh, Issa had a shot saved by Griffiths at 1-0. Grant had a 1v1 saved by Griffiths. Uh, and you felt a little bit like MK Dons were going to do what they've done the last few games and, and somehow throw it away from that point. But then Tucker just tucked it home for 2-0 and, and that was that. So a great day for MK, still managerless, as you say, George. And, and Alan Nixon reporting yesterday that MK Dons are, and I quote, keen to talk to Liam Richardson, which makes it sound like they haven't found a contact number for him yet. <laughs> um, but Matt McGinn... Going through reluctant Nico to get the number. <laughs> yeah. Um, Matt McGinn on NTT20 Squad, who's an MK fan, wanted to ask you about this. Um you mentioned on last week's pod, says Matt, that you don't think Richardson would be an obvious fit for this MK squad or words to that effect. Could you elaborate a bit on that, please? Yes, I shall. Um, clearly, results are the most important thing at this time uh, for MK Dons. And Liam Richardson is someone who is in the quite unique position of in the last two League One seasons. He not only has um, overseen a survival season uh, with Wigan, but then a promotion season the season after. And I think ideally for MK Dons, the 18-month plan should be to survive this season and then try and get promoted next season. Having said that, um, this is a squad that has absolutely been built to play a certain way. That is not necessarily the Liam Manning way. It is the MK way. It is the way that they have been recruiting to, to play under Russell Martin as well. The succession of those two managers was initially so successful because the apple didn't fall too far away from the tree. You know, this was, uh, I'm not suggesting by any stretch that Liam Manning is Russell Martin's son there, but um, <laughs> what, what I'm mainly saying is that the successor and the predecessor aligned in, in many ways. And with Liam Richardson, I don't think that's the case. If you look back at Wigan's um, promotion season last season, whilst there was a, a wealth of gratitude towards Richardson, there was this lingering feeling throughout the campaign where Wigan fans were kind of surprised that they were winning so many games. They couldn't really put their finger on why they were good. And then this season, as soon as results weren't going to weren't going their way, it was unbelievable how quickly Wigan fans turned against Richardson. And the, and the reason for that is the style of play. The reason for that is because they didn't like watching their team. I don't think they particularly liked watching their team's style of play last season when they were winning. And as soon as the results turned, it was enough was enough. And to us neutrals, that felt incredibly harsh. But they wanted to see a different start. And I think we're going to see with Colo Torre, uh, we are you know, early signs at um, you know at Millwall uh, in that first game. And then we'll find out tonight uh, against Sheffield United. It does feel to me like it might be a little bit proactive off the ball and a little bit more expansive on it. Um, so, which which might work out. I, I have a feeling it might not. Um, so you'd be bringing in a manager named Richardson who, who's, from what we know, his ideology around um, the way he wants to play football is is so far away from the plan. And I know that Liam Sweeting, as I mentioned last week, might not be every MK Dons fan's cup of tea, but I would be very, very surprised. And I'd probably, frankly, lose a little bit of respect for him uh, from a footballing standpoint if he was to turn to Liam Richardson and, and effectively tear up the process. Because in this game, in that job, in my opinion, you've got to be process-driven. 
uh, and to me Liam Richardson would be um, a signifier of tearing up what's been a lot of good work unless and this is something that Alex Bruce said on, on Five Live where you know you can't pigeonhole managers in a style of play of course you could hire Liam Richardson and say we want you to play this way but that represents a massive risk where you're going after somebody because they've got a good um, record in this league recently of, of getting a promotion but playing a certain way you know I wouldn't want Gareth Ainsworth to turn up at Oxford and start promising to play expansive football I'd be like well let's get someone in who's proven they can do that before um, now looking at, at the bookmakers um, prices we see that unsurprisingly off the back of that he is favourite really interesting to see that Brian Barry Murphy is another one whose odds have tumbled in, in recent days the total opposite of Liam Richardson like the absolute opposite end of the spectrum in terms of somebody who's also managed a lot in League One whose style of play is so aligned to what MK Dons have been doing. It's so aligned to the process of, of, of the way they want to play football, the way that they develop young players. But the results of that process were not particularly good and ended up with Rochdale getting relegated. Now, I would personally say that, in my view, Rochdale's relegation was, was probably inevitable, that every season they stayed up was a massive achievement. And I, given that Brian Barry Murphy has been at Manchester City um, coaching their youth team for the last two years, so you'd think he would have learnt a lot in that time, I, I'm sure if we were to run a poll right now of all MK Don's um, season ticket holders or, or match-going fans, I said, who do you want to hire, Liam Richardson or Brian, Bar- Brian Barry Murphy? I'm sure it would be 90-10% in favour of Richardson. But in my mind, Brian Barry Murphy would be a, a far more, what's the word here, appropriate appointment, someone who has proven himself in my mind to be able to play the kind of football they want who I think has a really high ceiling in terms of what he can achieve, who'd fit right into the club and, and, and their recruitment strategy as well. So it comes down to, do you tear up the process off the back of a, an incredibly poor three or four months and almost admit defeat? Or do you try and go out and get someone, you know, who is the next Russell Martin or the next Liam Manning, but possibly better than them? I, I, I personally think after the success previously, it should be the latter, but, um, but we'll have to wait and see. I mean impeccably explained also really apt that you stumbled upon the the apple doesn't fall far from the tree analogy when talking about mk because the fun thing about this win against portsmouth was dean lewington caretaker manager helping him out his dad ray lewington was there in his in his shorts running the um louis (laughs) running the the warm-up as well so between that father and son combo you really do have quite a lot of uh english football experience and getting a a big win dean lewington now not taking mk in their carabao cup game against leicester because he has to have surgery so he he didn't want to rearrange that needs to be done wants to get back playing doesn't want the job full-time he's made that clear so um his surgery more important than their Carabao Cup game against Leicester which I quite liked and my good cop for League One this weekend are the strikers or a specific set of strikers that's because yeah what are we four four months into the season four and a half months into the season I don't think in League One we've spent a lot of time loving or praising the strikers um the golden boot race hasn't felt that exciting um partly because there was such a strong favorite in johnson clark harris who is top of the charts and yet somehow doesn't feel like he is is performing that um that incredibly um maybe that's because we have such high standards for him because he scored 30 plus last time he was at this level because posh are a bit doom and gloom, so no one's really shouting about Clark Harris being top scorer. You've got Aaron Collins, who I spoke about last week, uh, and then you've got quite a few 
um, with, with a couple of goals fewer. But here we saw some really good centre-forward play. I think there were 17 goals over the course of the League One weekend and maybe 13 were scored, 12 or 13 scored by strikers. We have McGoldrick times three, sublime. You have Devante Cole times two, um, both of them close range, but one of them very cheeky, uh, kind of inventive back here when a cross came just slightly behind him. You had John Marquis scoring twice for Bristol Rovers, both just brutally good finishing uh, off the back of, of mistakes from Innes. You had Niall Ennis of, of Argyle, who all game just unbelievable movement off the ball, beautiful centre-forward play and got the goal that he deserved. Sam Cosgrove came off the bench and got a goal for Argyle as well. Brandon Hanlon, maybe the best goal of the, of the weekend in League One with a little shimmy to embarrass Cameron Burgess, the Ipswich defender, and win it for, for a Wiccan Wanderers. And Dion Charles, who, like Ennis, I just uh, watching the highlights and every Bolton attack, watch Charles's movement and it's everything you want to see from a striker. He's quick, he's agile, he makes three different runs in the space of three seconds uh, and he got his goal as well for Bolton. So League One strikers, or at least the ones I just mentioned, they're, they're my my best part of the weekend for me. That's what stood out watching the games back and that's what we love to see. But why don't you tell me about Derby 4, Forest Green nil, and get didsy with it. Didsy! Oh, I mean, it's so good, this. No career hat-tricks in the first 18 seasons as a professional footballer <laughs> then gets one age 34 and another one age 35 um <laughs> yeah, remarkable stuff and derby were i mean the, the weirdest thing about this in my view and i thought about this long and hard earlier was i watched the extended highlights back and i was so impressed by derby you know i thought forest green came into this in, in their best form so far this season in a much better place than they were previously and Derby were so effective at creating opportunities. They were really tidy in possession, very compact out of possession, and didn't really give Forest Green much of a sniff. I think Forest Green had one okay-ish chance in the in the first half. And then I listened to Paul Warren's post-match interview, and it was just it was just completely different to the game that I saw, and completely different to a four-nil victory. He said that they kind of lived on the edge in the first half, and and they were they went in at halftime two 0 up, and it didn't really reflect the the game itself. And you know he, he could just about say at the end of the day that they they deserved the win. I mean, he is setting some unbelievably high standards if that's his perception of that game, because I thought they were they were dominant throughout. They're by far the better side, really good. Um, I, I, you know, he's playing four four two, and that, the the Bird Harrahan um, midfield duo were just in possession, just absolutely running games so so well. Sibley playing left back um, is an interesting quirk, especially in a in a Paul Warren team where you don't necessarily anticipate the fullbacks are going to be the most attacking. Um, but it's working well. Mendes Lang is it's causing absolute havoc on the right hand side. They're just a, a very slick well-oiled football team at the moment who um, don't give up many chances and are, are very successful going forward and have plenty of attacking players in form so I I'm really excited about them at the moment I think if I was to and this is a bit of a theme at the moment with you know the top three in in league one um, struggling you know yeah, I think in my mind I think in your mind but you might correct me it, it, it's felt like those three are clear and then it was going to be the one that fell out would end up being in the playoffs with with the best of the rest, and and that does still you know with the gap that we're seeing at the moment in League One, it still feels like it's it's probably the case. But we've seen Argyle, Ipswich, and Sheffield Wednesday drop plenty of points, albeit not necessarily losing games. Um, although Ipswich obviously will get onto a second in, in a second, but Argyle have got one win in their last five. Um, Wednesday have drawn three games in a row. Uh, Ipswich just two wins in their last six. So we are seeing those three sides stutter a little bit. 
And it feels to me at the moment like Derby, who are currently in sixth, but have a game in hand um, on all three of those teams above and are nine points behind Sheffield Wednesday, are maybe best place to go forward and, and, and try and close that down. I think they might be the best of the rest, although Barnsley and Bolton and Wickham as well, all in really good form. So... Yeah, I mean, it's still eminently like, likely that those three teams will end up being the the three. But maybe we're starting to see them drift towards the pack with plenty, you know, the, the informed teams in the division seem to be in that little group beneath them. Mm. I think the way I, I, I wanted to look at Derby for this pod was just comparing 12 games under Warren with the nine games that Rossini had to start the season. The points per game is slightly improved. The underlying numbers are clearly improved. In particular, out of possession, Warren is locking stuff down. Uh, only eight goals conceded in their 12 games. If they can project that over the next 20, 25 games, they are, they are not going to move down the table, that's for sure. Uh, and I think we should also raise the fact that this is a squad that, well, it was thrown together in a matter of weeks over the summer. Um, yes, they were able to pay some nice wages, but that's obviously uh, not conducive to a particularly well-balanced, well-thought-through um, squad and, and that's what we're seeing four months into the season uh, Warner's got Corey Smith playing at right back the guy was playing like number 10 or attacking 8 for Swansea in the championship last season you got Louis Sibley is playing left back the centre-backs are cash in in his first full season doing really well and I'm sorry, I suddenly said Bruce Forsyth and Craig <laughs> and Craig Forsyth uh, who has spent most of his career at left back so um, you know he's not got a particularly individually stand out back four to work with and yet they're pretty comfortable out of possession they're keeping clean sheets they're keeping the opposition away from them so 12 games of worn for me the conclusion is he started well they're a better team than they were before certainly more sturdy team than they were under a senior and therefore for me a team more likely than they were to get into the playoffs a team more likely to win them if they do get into the playoffs and so you're starting to understand why the derby uh, board made what seemed at the time like Fairly lively and, and, and quite brave uh, decision. Argyle 2, Morecambe 1. George, that's some really nice passing moves for Argyle. Uh, Morecambe, particularly away from home, do not generally offer that much resistance to the opposition. They try their best to defend gamely, but they really do struggle to keep the opposition at bay. Even so, some of Argyle's passing moves were really lovely here. They created tons of chances for their strikers Whitaker had his his normal six shots Ennis had six shots Hardy had three shots Cosgrove came on and scored uh, and eventually they they managed to win this game but not without Connor Ripley putting together a significant goalkeeping performance um, take a bow Connor Ripley 13 shots on target in total two goals but 11 saves including a brilliant penalty save um, but a, a good day for Argyle they needed it I actually caught a snippet of you on on Five Live. You know, you made the point. This was a a, a, a pretty generous fixture for them to have after what's been a, a difficult few weeks, and uh, and they very much got the job done. And they hit the top, George, because Wickham won Ipswich nil. What a goal! Goal of the day, I think, from Brandon Hanlon. Not yes. necessarily the player you expect to do a nice uh, Lionel Messi impersonation in honour of the great man before his World Cup win. Um, but there he was, snarling down the right-hand side and a nice finish to make it 1-0. Um, another example this of Ipswich <laughs> struggling to... Um, yeah, struggling to, to put chances Score. away and coming off second best. But what's weird, and you and I discussed this um, earlier, is that Ipswich... A, a massively overperforming there, expected goals for in a, in a similar way to Burnley, and it, you know with Burnley it kind of feels like that. With Ipswich, it absolutely doesn't. Where it feels like there are so many games this season where they um, 
are you know are unable to make their dominance count and they are unable to to get ahead in games um but here yeah i mean it was it was a, a classic case of of what Wickham like to do um where they they got ahead and they made it incredibly frustrating for for Ipswich who despite creating many shooting opportunities had 20 shots in the game none of them are really big chances um and, and and Wickham were able to see it out. So a, a massively frustrating uh, one for, for Ipswich, especially having hit the top, capitalising finally on Wednesday and Argyle dropping points. Um, this was a uh, a tough game for them. Uh, they host Oxford on Boxing Day, um, which could be tricky if Oxford put in a similar performance as mm-hmm. they did at, at Hillsborough as well. So we'll see. Uh, we got asked by an Ipswich fan on Twitter, AWITFC, whether he or whether we think uh, Ipswich need a new striker he said the fans seem split on the idea as Ladapo does a decent hold up job and has knocked a few in but town don't score as many as their goal attempts should merit i think i don't want to speak for both of us but i certainly feel like if the first step of this conversation is to focus on the striker then you've already made a bit of a misstep here um i i think that ladapo is not performing unbelievably well, nor do I think he's performing unbelievably poorly, nor do I think that Ipswich not taking their chances is necessarily down to Ladapo um, specifically. Um, and I, I'm i kind of loath to suggest that just buying another striker in January would instantly make the goals flow because that's not necessarily how I think. Um, at the same time, he he is in my head, although it's hard to measure, quite streaky, Ladapo. I think even this season... He scored in a batch, but outside of that, he hasn't been so great. So, if you could get a guaranteed, consistent goal scorer who's gonna who's gonna get on the end of the same amount of chances as Ladapo, whose movement's pretty good, and finish them basically overperform his xG, that would be great. But that's pretty hard to buy. I guess they are at least in quite a strong position to buy League One's best talent, like sort of buy <laughs> buy Munich style. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, the first thing to say is, and I kind of alluded to it there. I'm not sure he's right. Where I'm not sure he's right that Ipswich should have scored more than their, than their, their their goal attempt suggests. Kind of breaking it down player by player. Freddie Ladapo has expected goals. This is all kind of non-penalty stuff of, of just over six, and he scored six goals. So he's bang on where he should be. Um, Connor Chaplin just over five. He scored eight, so he's overperforming. Um, Tyree Strongjules three and three, so bang on. Morsi three and three, so bang on. Harness has scored five from two point seven, so over uh, overperforming. In fact. I think the only outfield players who are underperforming their expected goals are Leif Davis, Cameron Burgess, Donassian and Christian Walton. Um, Is so- there a bit of a weird sense where like they score two or three or four in like 60% of their sure. games and then in certain games they, they score zero they or struggle. one? They yeah. struggle, but, but So I don't think the strike is the issue and I think especially when you look at the players that they have brought in in terms of strikers, it would be ridiculous of us to sit here and say, oh, I think they should go and get, I don't know, like Ryan Hardy isn't starting games at Argyle. Could they go and tempt tempt him over given he scored eight goals uh, this season from only about a thousand minutes? Well, maybe, but is he better than Piggott? Is he better than Bond? Is he better than all the other really high achieving League One strikers they've already brought in in the past who failed to really make an impact? Probably not. Like, <laughs> I think Ladapo is a pretty good player and I think in Chaplin they've got a good player to play off him as well. The one... I thought about, but I'm pretty sure he wouldn't be available. Is you know, Scott Twine's clearly had a very difficult start to life at, at Burnley uh, with fitness. Is there any chance they could go to Burnley and say, look, you know, we'll get him back fit and playing and getting minutes, 
and you know you'll have a new player back with you next season um, because it does feel like it might be tricky for, tricky for him to really get himself settled at Burnley especially because they're going to go out and get players as well and it'd be a great place for him to go and play again he'd, he'd I think be uh, a magnificent player to, to play off Ladapo as well so that would be one angle but I, I don't necessarily think that Ipswich's problem um, I mean it might be in isolation for sure but but over the course of the, the campaign they aren't um, being particularly wasteful in front of goal I think that suggestion in terms of the position of the pitch is a very very good one I think it's more likely they go after another number 10 type than a striker um, Harness is injured at the moment uh, Chaplin is putting up some pretty good numbers certainly getting on the end of a lot of chances but my what I think is that McKenna likes to play with two tens and one striker rather than one ten and two strikers. Uh, and so it would make sense to have another body or maybe two, depending on Harness's recovery, uh, added in that in that position in, in January because he has got Caden Jackson. Um, I'm not sure of the current fitness level of John Jules. I'm not sure of the current fitness level of Hadme. He's come off the bench there and he's come off the bench three times. So, you know, maybe give a Hadme a go. I honestly think it's it's the case that Ladapo could easily go on a streak where he scores ten in ten, and and suddenly yeah. we'll be we'll be celebrating him. Uh, as for Wickham, they're in great form. It's ten points in their last five games, just easing back up the table, back to the level expected, um, putting behind them what was quite a strange start to the season. Only strange because we're not used to Wickham basically underperforming expectations. They so regularly overperform them. Uh, but we have quite lofty expectations for them now because of the years of overperforming it. Uh, and certainly being around the playoffs and the playoff fringes, that's where we expect them to be. That's where they are now. Um, Scowan with seven tackles, I think, just summing Scowan up. And he's such a key player for them. I really enjoyed Bolton's performance against Exeter. That is much better, Bolton Wanderers. That was proper football. That was a proper team performance with no wobbles and boy have there been a lot of no late drama <laughs> <laughs> a lot of wobbles recently um every chance and there were loads here seems to me to come from really nice attacking play really good sort of properly well coached patterns of play wide rotations clever runs good passing getting the cutbacks and stuff um you know, it might be that I just watched it in a good if I'd watched it in a grumpy mood I'd be picking apart Exeter's defending but I think this was a team Finally, for the first time in a few months, putting together an exceptional level of performance for the for this level um, for ninety minutes here, and uh, and Dion Charles at the heart of it, who just looks so menacing at the moment. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, just they do play with a lot of width. They do combine out wide and, and try and work those cutbacks. And Charles is always on the move in the middle. He's one of those strikers who just fights for everything. I think he he realizes. Um, that if if you're going to make 10 runs, it might just be the one that ends up with with you getting a chance, but you need to make those 10 runs to get them, and and that's what he's doing at the moment. And yeah, quite a chaotic three months or so for Bolton on the pitch, a a 10-game period where they only won three games, and all of them were late comebacks from behind. Didn't seem like they had great control over matches in that time, so this would have been a very, very welcome performance. It's the sort of level of performance they need to to start hitting consistently. Uh, And a similar result, Similar-ish performance, George, for Barnsley, who keep on winning 2-0 home win against Burton. All you need is stuff. <laughs> They're good, aren't they? Yeah. Um, yeah, kind of reflecting what I said about Derby earlier, where um, in my mind I'd kind of written off Barnsley as being a side where, like, yeah, they could finish in the, in the top six. And if they do, then, you know, they're not going to be able to chase down those, those three teams at the top of the table 
maybe that's wrong. Maybe they are good enough. Um, I don't think they were necessarily good enough at the start of the season, but they are improving pretty quickly and they're making light work of teams, which is, um, you know, the, the best thing you can say about them. That is now five games that they've won on the trot. They're scoring goals fairly regularly. They've only conceded two goals in that time coming off the back of a four-game um, winless streak. I think Duff has them really well drilled. Uh, I feel like Burton Albion under Mamre have, have put in uh, consistently kind of pretty good performances and haven't necessarily got their just rewards. Whereas this wasn't that. They were completely outplayed for the whole game. Uh, Barnsley by far the better side. Uh, Devante Cole getting both goals uh, and he is pretty quickly becoming their star. Cadden on the left-hand side, I think, has, has finally settled into that role and, and is producing a great deal. Herbie Kane's been on, on, in really good form recently. Suddenly, these are players who are like, yep, yeah, okay, these are good League One players who are operating at a high level and, and their first eleven now looks much better than it did a couple of weeks ago, in my view. So, um, Duff proving that he isn't one of those managers who can only do it at one club, I think. We are seeing an, an improvement week on week with them. Um, and they... Yeah, no package them in with Derby, where if, if Wednesday continue to slip up um, or or either of the other two teams above them, then I'm pretty sure Derby and, and, and Barnsley are going to continue to pick up points at a, a kind of a, a rate that will enable them to, to capitalise on any mistakes from, from those above. Yeah, Burton had scored in, in nine straight before then, so just keeping them at bay is, is a really, really um, good effort uh, and reflects very well on Duff and his setup here. I, I had a look at... Uh, Cheltenham's underlying numbers the season that they won League Two, so the 2020-21 season. Lucky the you. Barnsley, Crazy the Barnsley numbers are so similar in terms of the way they project, the way that they defend, how effective it is. Their defensive numbers are excellent. Um, the only the only big difference is they don't have the set-piece proficiency. They don't have the bent toes, a long throw, but everything else is almost identical. And, well, that was a season that ended with Duff's team winning the league. So all bodes pretty well. As for Burton, such a, a tricky fixture list over the last eight games or so. They're in a funny position where I, I don't believe they're playing like a relegation team at all, Burton. I don't think they've played like a relegation team for three months and yet they still have a ton of ground to make up and they really need to, to stick with it basically and, and, and make sure that when the, the, the next fixtures come that they're still setting high standards. Charlton won, Bristol Rovers two. Things were actually going pretty well for Charlton until the 60th minute. They're 1-0 up, probably the correct result at that time. And then Ryan Innes with two bits of not very good possession play at the back and John Marquis with the aforementioned brutal finishing, two exquisite takes uh, and Bristol Rovers leaving with all three points. I think we did Charlton in decent depth last week and nothing's really changed on that front. So I'll focus on Bristol Rovers and just say, although there are so many attacking players thriving, Collins, of course, and Coburn and Marquis here, even in, in, in slightly deeper roles, Evans has been brilliant. Scott Sinclair, we talked about, is doing really well. But that's not just why they've been flying recently. It's actually, I think, the fact that they sorted out what was defensive chaos at the early part of the season, um, easily reflected in the goal against Column. 22 conceded in their first 11 games, only 13 conceded in their last 11 games. And that's having played, what, five of the top seven, I think, in that time. Um the back three of Gibson, Connolly and Thomas have started the last four games together. They've conceded two in that time. And uh, yeah, I think if they can if they can stay on top of things at the back, maybe add another body in January because they're quite light there. I noticed that very popular loney from last season, Connor Taylor, hasn't played in three months for Stoke. I wonder if they could tempt him back for the second half of the season. I said it on the betting show. I think Bristol Rovers are playing like a top six team right now. So I think we've got a lot of teams to get excited about uh, and, a, and a League One 
top six battle that's really quite exciting. Sheffield Wednesday near Oxford nil was chaos, George. Some some great goalkeeping mm. from what I saw. Cameron Dawson starting for the first time in two years for Sheffield Wednesday and making up for lost time with a uh, a match saving penalty save um, and uh, and some good saves from Eastwood as well. Yeah, it was a, a game of, of quite a few chances. Um, I think both teams will probably feel like they had enough in, in the 90 minutes to, to win the game, but um, it would be Oxford who are probably kicking themselves more partly because they didn't anticipate to have the kind of opportunities they had to win this game. Uh, three really good chances. Marcus Brown doing incredibly well to, to get to kind of bear down on goal in the first couple of minutes and deciding to throw in a, a cheeky little step over rather than shooting was an interesting call. Um, James Henry missing an open goal and then... Very late in injury time, um, Josh Murphy missing a penalty, leaving some Oxford fans scratching their head as to why Murphy um, was trusted with that. I had a look on transfer marked and, and see that he's only taken one penalty before in his career, um, at least in, in professional football. It was in 15-16 playing for Carl Robinson's MK Dons and he missed. Oh no! I, do you know what? I've got a theory. I reckon it's as simple as this. 2015, they're larking around on a Tuesday after training, playing, uh, you know, foot golf or table tennis or what's the what's the one that's like table tennis but with a bendy table and you like head the ball. They're probably playing that, and uh, Robinson being Robinson, giving it the big and says, if anyone can beat me, they can be on pens <laughs> forever <laughs> for the rest of my career. And Murphy's holding him to it. Maybe. I mean, the, the, the annoying thing is that James Henry um, has also... Um, scored loads of penalties. He's taken 13 penalties. Well, he's taken 13 penalties for Oxford and he scored uh, 11 of them. So it's bizarre in my mind that that happened. But we don't know. You know, we don't know what happens behind closed doors. We don't know um, what Murphy does in training. And in fairness, Josh Murphy was, was superb when he came on in, in the 20 minutes he was on. And I think he could be a massive player for Oxford if he's now fit. Yannick Wiltshire also came on and was really lively as well. So two players that Carl Robinson has often pointed towards as being the two marquee signings in the summer that have been injured for the whole campaign um, could be different for Oxford if they if they are back. And for Wednesday, missing Barry Bannon for the first time in a long time, that clearly has an impact. Um, our mole at the game uh, said that Marvin Johnson was the, the pick of the bunch for, for Wednesday. He missed a decent opportunity uh, in the first half. Um, you know, it was a game of, of many chances. It could have gone either way, but certainly, especially with the penalty, Oxford ruining what, what would have been a, a massive three points for them. And, and what's, in, you know, again, in this pod I do for Oxford, uh, a, a 35 yard strike from Ethan Hamilton in, in injury time a missed penalty um, if if those two things don't happen if the penalty scored and that doesn't fly into the corner then Oxford are a couple of points off the playoffs so um, you know not all's lost yet in a week where Elon Musk decreed or Twitter decreed that you were now banned from promoting your work on other sites like Instagram, etc. I'm going to put a ban on you mentioning this Oxford podcast that you're on because we don't Why? we don't need more rivals, mate. You record that on a Monday. You that gets released on a Monday. No, there's only one <laughs> podcast listened to on a Monday, and it's ours. Yeah, I was just talking about Le- I yeah, was just fair. talking about Lionel Scaloni for five minutes. You didn't hear me talk about my uh, f- athletic football tactics podcast, which then, is listened by then, like- tens of thousands of people each week. You've just done exactly what Elon's mum did. There you go. You've you've said you've you supported it, and then she immediately posted a um, a video to her TikTok, and that's what you've done. Ah, so you are Elon Musk's mum. Done a Mrs. Musk. 
a Musk mm. mum. Mrs. Musk. Hey, uh, <laughs> League Two is having a weird one, isn't it? Because of the old ice. Um, it's basically had its own three weeks World Cup break without meaning to. Uh, certainly for 10 of the 24 teams who have missed two games in a row. Their last league games were back on the 3rd of December and their next ones will be on the 26th. So I guess for some of them, that could be great news, getting players back from little injuries, resting up a little bit. But of course, on the flip side, it leaves them a lot of games to be played and a decreasing amount of time to do so. Swindon and Sutton have have been playing as normal. Swindon picking up four points from their two games. Good return for Scott Lindsay, who just started to come under a bit of pressure from the fan base. I think the sort of pressure that would surprise a neutral uh, based on their league position, based on the squad churn in the summer that we spoke so much about. But uh, there's been some murmurings about his, uh, particularly his in-game management, which is uh, which is often something that gets levelled at managers not being good enough. Well, they're my good cop out of the two games that went ahead here because I was impressed with their win at Barrow. I was impressed with their performance. Uh, it was four without a win before this. It was four without a goal before this. And the attacking stuff had really slowed down. So I was impressed to see them coming out with quite a lot of intent, uh, quite enterprising stuff, missing quite a lot of players as well here, particularly at the back. Um, got ahead, really thanks to Barrow. A very messy start from them. Warren, shifty on the ball. Farman, f- absolutely flying in to take out. I think it was probably Wakeling um, and the penalty scored. And then... Yeah, Swindon fairly comfortable, I think, given the length of time they were ahead in this game, away from home as well, against a team with a good home record this season. Um, They took quite a lot of shots, Swindon, albeit, again, quite a lot from range, which has been a real theme recently. And I would say Barrow didn't offer nearly enough, but I'm going to give some credit uh, to Swindon for for a big part of that. They're into fourth. Uh, They're at the top of a group of six teams between fourth and ninth, George, who are separated by just 0.1 PPG, which, as you know, is... The sort of thing that gets me very excited. Uh, the other game was Leighton 2, Sutton United nil. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to do a bad cop because that's unfair. The bad cop is the ice. Um, but I'm going to do another good cop. I think actually, it's interesting, you, this is me from three weeks ago because I think it was the ice that gave me a bad tummy in South Africa for a day or two. Uh, yeah, I think it that's was. people were saying. I, I suffered a similar fate. Um, I am, yeah, I'm giving it to just Barrow Football Club for getting their game on. Like, unbelievable effort that. Nice. <laughs> What, what yeah. a, Although I think some Swindon fans, some Swindon fans were quite frustrated because they were like, "Call it off already!" Because like, you know, we need to know if it's on or not, and it's obviously going to be off. And then at one, they were like, "Yeah, it's it's on, it's on, get here." Yeah. They were like, oh, it's seven hours away. Can't. Wait, isn't that because Barrow's in a furnace that it was on? Yeah, because everything just melted yes. away. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Clever. Um, no word for the Leighton Orient volunteers that helped get their game on not far from you. And yeah, them too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. my mates. Yeah, they were my mates there. Just yeah. as well they did. Two um, 0 no. Correct. I wasn't going to give bad cop to Sutton because um, you know it feels Mate, like that would be a bit unfair. Take but... your badge off. Take the take the gun out of the holster. You're you're off the clock here. Just talk about the football. You don't need to be a cop. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, yeah, it was it was fairly dominant from Leighton Orient. Sutton are a proper Jekyll and Hyde team at the moment in terms of their their away form performances being nowhere near um, how how they are at home. Uh, comedy own goal for the second, but the goal of the day in League Two. There were only three. Uh, goes to Paul Smith with a, a brilliant strike. I think you know if we were to to pull the plug of League Two right now, would he win League Two Player of the Year? Possibly. Yes. Um, he's been one hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> He's been um, the best player for the best team and with their highlights reel to, to match, um, you do think that there might be a couple of clubs interested in his services in January. I, I hope that the team I support are looking at him, uh, wearing, who wear the same colour shirt as the shirt you're wearing right now. Uh, and I think there'll be other League One clubs certainly interested. Well, 
just the seven point gap between Orient and second place now. Just the 16 point gap to fourth place looking very, very good indeed at the moment. That's the end of this week's Monday pod. It's been a, a pleasure and a joy to chat you, you guys through the weekend docket. Um, Boxing Day is next, isn't it? That's Those games are on Monday. So we'll be back again in the second half of the week at some point with a betting show. From basically the moment I hit publish uh, on this pod, I won't know what day it is for a while. So um, trust us to do our best and make sure that we're covering these leagues as best we can over the next few weeks. Um, But also we hope that everyone is able to spend some time with their family over this holiday period uh, and enjoy that as well as enjoying some EFL action. We'll be here throughout. Uh, And make sure that you follow us if you're able to support us on a TikTok or an Instagram or the YouTube at NTT20Pod is where you can find us. Huge thanks to Betfair for their support of this podcast on the Monday pod. We had our best week of the season on the betting show last week. So give us a go in the second half of this one as we try and... I was going to say catch lightning in a bottle, but then I realised that the phrase is lightning striking twice. Anyway, we're going to try and... You're all over the show. Let's hope that lightning strikes twice and that we're waiting with a bottle for the betting show. Thanks for listening. Go out.